Well, it occurred to me that this might be, end up being, the most unpopular sermon that I will preach all year. So get excited. Get really excited. Let's do it. Uh, how many of you are familiar with Hans Christian Andersen's famous fable, The Emperor's New Clothes? Most of you? Maybe, maybe not. If you aren't, here's a three-sentence summary. This really vain emperor, call him a clothes horse, right? He was conned into buying expensive new clothes that were supposedly magic, invisible to stupid people. So the effect was that everyone, afraid of admitting their stupidity, went along with it, except for one child. And many cultures have a version of this story, whether it's a fable or actually plays out in their history, but uh, someone like this kid who is willing to say, I don't know what all of you guys are looking at, but that guy's naked. <laughs> in Russian culture, there's an archetype called Eurodivy, the holy fool who is in some sense an outcast or a weirdo, but has unique access to the truth even insistence upon the truth. They embody the truth. Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot, uh, if you've got you know, um, a whole year to read one book, then read The Idiot. And it centers around this character uh, called Mishkin, a truly decent human, whose presence as much as his words actually expose the superficiality and the, and the hypocrisy and the corruption in contemporary Russian society. Uh, Mishkin is principled, he's loving, but he's regularly dismissed as naive and simple. He's a lightning rod, which means it's through him uh, uh, this attention is being diverted for, away from what's wrong, away from the ugliness. And so to them, Mishkin is the problem. Abraham Heschel was a rabbi, really uh, the finest Jewish theologian uh, of the 20th century. Um, and he called the prophets the most disturbing people who have ever lived, whose inspiration brought the Bible into being, whose significance lies not only in what they said, but also in what they were. And prophets, the prophetic has been necessary throughout the history of God's people. Someone to say, we're naked, we're exposed, we're in trouble, things aren't going as they should. They're the ones who see what others don't or won't. What God shows them is not usually anything new, actually. They see what's been forgotten or what's been rejected by others. They see what's been blown to the margins by the prevailing winds of culture. They feel what others don't because their conscience has been dulled. Prophets are the ones who feel it. Their ministry is radical in the truest sense of the word. They return to the root, to the dirt, and that's where they find the problem. That's where they point. That's where they're concerned, and they know where things are heading if they don't change. They know what will grow from the ground or won't. So it's no wonder that God picked Amos, who is this fig-picking shepherd, from the southern kingdom of Judah to roll into the northern kingdom of Israel with a word of warning and eventually hope. He wasn't blinded by and he wasn't benefiting from all the idolatry, uh, the, the opulence and the revelry of Israel, where in Amos' words, they were afflicting the righteous. They were relying on bribery. That's just how they were doing business, so to speak. 
They were relying on corruption, concentrations of power, and they were turning away the needy at the gate, is what he said. They had so much, and yet were so unwilling to share. You might say they were too big to fail, too successful to bother with the discomforts of justice. They saw life through pleasure goggles. And Amos was just a regular dude with his hands in the dirt. God showed him how far out of square the foundation was being laid in Israel. This imagery is powerful, this, of, this imagery of the plumb line. Verse 7 says, this metaphorical wall of Israel, it was built with a plumb line, but there stands God with a plumb line in his hand. And one of the inference, at least one of the inferences may be that they supposedly built the wall, and yet here's God with, with a, pl- a plumb line, and here's God with a plumb line in his hand, and that's what Amos is meant to see. And when God holds his plumb, plumb line up to it, it is as crooked as a dog's hind leg. But how do they respond to this message? How do they respond to Amos? They just want him to go away. The priest of Bethel, Amaziah, says, you're disturbing the king in his sanctuary. He suggests that Amos can just eat bread back in Judah and prophesy there. And that's really an insult. It's a way of suggesting that Amos is like all the other prophets for hire around there in his age. Uh, they're, They're just there for profit. And Amos is indignant. What does he say? He says, I'm a shepherd and a farmer. And to some extent he's saying, do you actually think I want to be doing this? Why would I put my life on the line to tell you this? It doesn't matter. Go away. Go back to Judah, Amos. We're good here. We're fine. And what makes the plumb line metaphor especially powerful is that according to chapter 1, an earthquake is two years away. And it will literally shake every wall to the ground. So this book is a retrospective. Amos warned them in themes that were actually more vivid and more tangible than were obvious to them at the time. He saw, but they didn't listen. So in the last chapter of Amos, this final collapse is foretold. And yet, the book ends with these words of promise. I don't want you to listen to them carefully. He says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen, and I will repair its breaches. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. It's a heavy word that ends in hope. This restoration of Israel, we know, is a foreshadowing of the message and ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 21, Jesus invokes Psalm 118 to describe himself as what? The cornerstone of a wall. The cornerstone the builders rejected. A stone laid in Zion, it says. This is the Lord's doing, says the psalmist, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's a gracious restoration In other words, a new wall is being built. It is actually square, though. It is secure. The wall will hold. But as it's being laid, it may just be a stumbling stone to some. Jesus has just told the Pharisees here uh, in Matthew 21, he's just told the Pharisees a parable of a vineyard run by corrupt tenants. 
And what does he say? He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. So we get in, in Jesus' words right there in that confrontation echoes of Amos rebuilt walls and replanted vineyards. And it's all over the ministry of Jesus who will be the new temple. Jesus who will be the vine. Do you see it? Jesus' words, his life, his power, his authority are laid perfectly plumb to the will of God. He is the foundation on which the hope of the world is being laid and on whom we, as Peter says, are being built together as living stones as a place for God's presence. And every generation will build on that. Jesus is also the new vine planted by the Father. And as he says in John's Gospel, his disciples and you and me are carefully pruned to bear the fruit of the kingdom. As Amos promised, the wine of this restored vineyard is a celebration of God's redemption. And we will drink it together again today, looking backward to the cross and then forward to the feast of his return. We are already in the midst, graciously and powerfully in the midst of the promised restoration of Israel and through Israel the whole world. All the language is there. All the symbolism find its meaning in, finds its meaning in Jesus. The kingdom is more than territory and dirt. It will begin within, but it will go beyond the walls of Israel, beyond the borders of Israel. The kingdom will be wherever God's people go, wherever it's announced, wherever Christ is exalted, and where justice and healing in his name are being enacted. The temple's walls will rise wherever he's loved and wherever he's worshipped. And he promised that the fruit will grow anywhere we abide in him. That is fantastic news. So for a few minutes, let's just allow our gospel reading, the one we have today, very brief, to speak prophetically to us. It has much to do with this. These seven verses in our reading today in Mark are the story of Jesus sending his disciples out like prophets Prophets of old carrying both warning and promise from God to his people. We need to understand that. There's always something prophetic about evangelism and witness. So they're saying turn away from building your life on anything else. The cornerstone is here. The plumb line is being set in your midst. Not even liberation from poverty, sickness, or a pagan empire is enough. There is a deeper captivity than foreign occupation. There is a freedom that is deeper still that freedom has arrived there to announce the kingdom of god is in your midst get on board so with supernatural signs not unlike many of the prophets of old the disciples go out in pairs announcing this freedom with unmistakable signs that god is moving but jesus adds this interesting wrinkle doesn't he he tells them to travel light they're called to rely on God's provision in evangelism, in witness, to rely on that through the people they are reaching. They aren't simply making converts, they are making community. They're making community. Receptivity will translate to hospitality, to mutuality. But there's another angle of this sending out light that is really more the thrust of Matthew's gospel. They aren't to be confused with professionals either. 
This is more the emphasis there uh, in chapter 10 of Matthew, and that's a more lengthy account of this commissioning. You might want to read that. But the deal is profiteering was all too common in that day. Somebody who had something to say and wanted to make money for it, but Jesus wants to avoid any appearance of that. He wants them to travel light, to trust in him, to build community and to rely upon community and to not give any impression that this is for sale. And we see that confrontation in Acts at times too. They are going in faith and they are offering the message and the ministry of Jesus freely. And then Jesus does not mince words when he talks about this mixed reception they will get. And we need to listen to this. It's important. They'll be welcome guests in some villages, but they'll be rejected lightning rods in others. Plant where the soil is receptive, he's saying. Move on where it resists. That's just the way it is. Just, just the way it is. Shake the dust from your feet. And again, Matthew's gospel is even more prophetic in this regard, so to speak. So what do we do with this? As I kind of sort of set these out and we think about the prophetic ministry and mission of the witness of disciples of Jesus, we think about the prophetic uh, tradition that we have, the role of God speaking to people, making known and visible to some that they're meant to make known and visible to others. What do we do with this? And this question might be the thing that makes this sermon unpopular. But I believe this is unavoidable for us. The question is, is this just a description of what the disciples did? Or is this what the gospel does? Is this what we do? I think it's both. It's what the disciples did, but this is what the gospel does. It's what God does because of who He is. And now, again, you're realizing, oh, this sermon is about evangelism, sharing my faith. What's turning over in you right now? I think we need to listen to that. Take it seriously. When you think about being a witness, is there resistance? Is there discomfort? Is there dread? Something else? What we easily forget, friends, is that evangelism is the heart of God for those He loves. He is the God who goes. He is the God who calls. The God who gathers. The God who woos His enemies through love. He is the Father who adopts, who calls us by His name, and who is always building rooms for us. Jesus is the Son of God who leaves His glory to share the very inheritance Paul talks about in Ephesians today. To share it with us who don't deserve it. He is the elder brother, so to speak, who seeks and saves the lost sibling. You and me. This is why we do it. This is our witness. It's the love of God for the world with whom He is in covenant. And we are the covenant bearers and the witnesses to the goodness of it. Now, you may have been taught to believe, whether intentionally or not, that evangelism is this compulsory job that God has given people to, uh, to do to just spread our religion, a particular religion whereby the world will look more like us and it will work more the way we want it to work. That might have been what you inherited when you think about evangelism. Convert everyone. But listen, that's not even close to enough when we think about this. Evangelism is simply the desire for others to know God. To be with Him now. And to be with Him forever. 
And like the disciples, we know this love is not deterred by rejection or even a sense of our own failure. Maybe now more than any time in history, evangelism is unpopular. It may be because we don't actually believe Jesus is necessary. It may be because we don't want to be associated with some compromised Christianities out there, which is understandable at one level. But it might also be that we're afraid, thinking we are relying on our own knowledge and our own power to convert people. Or maybe we're afraid of offending, which is also valid. But friends, these fears aren't new. These aren't new. And the gospel will always have a prophetic effect, whether spoken or merely lived out. I think we also need to recognize a dichotomy that exists in our day when it comes to the gospel. We really, really do. Some of us and some traditions tend to exclusively emphasize the aspect of evangelism whereby people are converted to Christian worship and culture, joining the church, and for the most part, taking up this pursuit of personal piety and holiness, avoiding all the sins that once so easily beset us, just simply being different than them. Others of us tend to, primarily, if not exclusively, emphasize the aspect, aspect of evangelism that pursues the social good, laboring for justice and peace and equity and the dignity of all people languishing, those who are languishing at the margins of society. So in other words, the gospel is just supposed to make life on earth better for more people and preferably all people. And the religious or spiritual aspect is secondary. That's the other end of that dichotomy. And as I see it, American Christians tend to cast the pearls of the gospel before the swine of our national politics. So maybe you heard politics in the way I was describing the way we think about evangelism. But we do this. We cast the pearls of the gospel before the swine of our national politics, and we have a hard time thinking about our faith and the gospel outside of that. In our day, both of these priorities and this dichotomy I talk about, they can end up being reduced to our politics. One really key difference between the two camps I'm describing tends to be how each one understands sin, personally and corporately. And so this tends to be how each defines justice and pursues peace and how each one identifies who and what are at risk and why they are. Does that make sense? And I'm here to tell you today, friends, neither of these will do. Neither of these will do alone. This is a false option. And let me just put it plainly. We'll talk about both of them again. Any evangelism that is very serious about the church, very serious about sin, but whose divisive economic and social conscience tends to be informed primarily by capitalism or worse, nationalism, and isn't radically concerned about just economic and judicial systems and peaceable solutions to real problems, that evangelism is out of step with Jesus and the church of Scripture. When it comes to the full scope of the faithful witness and the reach of redemption. Now, at the same time, any evangelism that functionally reduces the gospel to social consciousness, to good works, at its, and, and at its worst dips into this very divisive, like the other divisive, Marxist victim-oppressor narrative, it has abbreviated the meaning of both righteousness and sin, and it has reduced the lordship of Jesus and the scope of his suffering to, let's be honest, an attractive religious option. Jesus died for victims and oppressors. You're both of them. 
He died even for his own oppressors. And he lives to make us holy and wholly devoted to him, both to his purposes for the world and to the obedience and the holiness without which no one will see God, as John says. So I want to suggest that our embodied and shared witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ is a prophetic and it's even a disturbing both and. Can I get a witness? Since our imagination is so captive to politics, let me just simply say that I believe the biblical gospel faithfully, uh, faithfully proclaimed and lived in real time, in real space, in your life, in your city, is probably going to disturb both ends of the political spectrum in our time. Not just at the extremes either. Christians have a vision of heaven and earth united both in holy devotion to the one true God and in laboring right now for the kind of justice and peace that will arrive when he comes to judge the living and the dead, to vindicate, to liberate, and to save. And as I close, I simply want to offer some thoughts about how we, quick ones, how we can live into this both, both and. As a church, as individuals who have, we all have our own villages, so to speak, that we're moving toward, into which the gospel is going through us prophetically and powerfully, provided we're willing. So first, we have to believe for it together as a church. We've got to all believe that it's important, increasingly believe, that as a church, we have to share this renewed passion for people to know Jesus personally and to know the kind of world Jesus wants. Secondly, we shouldn't be surprised or deterred by its mixed reception. It's always been the case and always will be. Thirdly, we shouldn't be surprised or deterred by the mixed nature of the church and how we are often misrepresented. This is why Jesus told the parable of the wheat and the tares. He'll sort it out in the end. The answer to a false gospel is not a suppressed gospel. The answer is an authentic gospel, an embodied gospel. Fourthly, each of us must pray for those we know regularly. That the Holy Spirit will do, go ahead of us to do implicitly what God is calling us to do explicitly and will listen to what he is saying is actually happening, not just what we want to happen. Fifth, we must center our witness, our words around hope. That's what we are called to be ready to talk about, the hope that you have. But listen, when I say hope, don't hear triumphalism. The message of hope includes our suffering, our uncertainty. It, it includes our shared experience with all humanity. Hope isn't triumphalistic, and it's not blind optimism either. Real hope recognizes the darkness for what it is. But hope also sees the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, who himself suffered. Six, we must be willing to say, I don't know. I'm still learning. It's a mystery. Come and see. Seven, we must be ready to acknowledge the church's own constant need for repentance when we fail to live up to our best ideas and our ideals. We, above all people in the world, ought to be the ones who fear God and know that we've got, we can and should bring our sin be confess our sin and receive the healing that comes on the other side of that. If we aren't willing to take the low seat, then what is the hope of the world? Eight, we must reject the idea that we are ever disqualified as a witness to the gospel. 
That is the message of the accuser, that whatever is going on in your life, you can no longer be a witness to the gospel. We are all sinners, saints. We are all wounded healers. We're all in the game. And lastly, I think the three questions about self-protection I mentioned last week can be helpful. Here they are. You want to hear them again? And I think we need to ask this. What am I afraid of losing? What am I trying to hide? And what am I trying to prove and to whom? This might just keep us from being the witness we've called to be. Far be it from us, Lord. If we can honestly bring these into the light, these questions into the light of our prayers and our times together, then we may begin to find ourselves as those sent with a prophetic message, as those who God has always sent with a prophetic message found themselves to be. And according to Abraham Heschel, they are facing man but they're being faced by God, a person whose life and soul are at stake in what he says and in who he is, a person able to perceive the silent sigh of human anguish. Heschel said prophets are those for whom the deep struggles and needs of the world assume cosmic proportions. Lord, give us a little bit of a sense of the cosmic proportion of the gospel for the world, awaiting and watching and longing world sighing in human anguish. And it seems clear to me in the Gospels that this characteristic of the prophet, this move toward the deep sighing, this move toward facing man and being faced by God, this is imparted to all of us as witnesses to hope and to the divine inheritance that Paul reminds us of today. And to the fact that we, as Paul reminds the Corinthians, we're always carrying around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be visible in our bodies. This is prophetic witness. This is the good news. And we are the messengers. Do you believe it? Lord, help us to believe it. Lead us. Give us strength and power and help us to move out in your authority. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.